Bonjour à toutes et à tous, je m'appelle Mathilde Hutin, je viens de Paris, je parle le français qui est ma langue maternelle, je parle aussi allemand et anglais et un petit peu l'italien, le néerlandais et d'une manière générale je peux lire les langues romanes et les langues germaniques et euh, je parle un petit peu la LSF aussi, la langue des signes françaises. Bienvenue sur le Fluent Show Welcome to The Fluent Show, a podcast all about loving, living and learning languages. Hello, Fluent Fam. Hello, Fluent Show listeners. My name is Kirsten Cable from fluentlanguage.co.uk. And here on the show, we talk about anything and everything interesting from the world of learning another language and what more fun thing to have on the fluent show than a linguist that's it today on the show i have got a very special interview with a linguist mathilde from elcom linguist which is a french youtube channel dedicated to linguistics pour tout mathilde visited the fluent show to talk about what linguistics is all about We chatted a little bit about being a PhD student at Paris, in Paris, and then we focused on the big topic, which is all about loan words, loan words like champagne, mousepad. Yes, that's a loan word in French, and kartoffel in Polish, and beamer in German. Every language, every language has loan words, but why do so many of them come from English? And what decides why some words come into our language as loan words? And what influences how many loan words a language takes on? And should you even use them? If you're a native speaker of English and you're going somewhere, do you is speaking Denglish some kind of cop out? There are so, so many questions, and I love the way that Mathilde covered them all in today's interview. It's a really, really good one. I'm so happy to introduce this to you. Before we crack on, of course, it's time for a few news and announcements. The first one, as so often, is my reminder to you that this show is sponsored and supported by a wonderful sponsor, Yabla. Yabla.com slash Fluent Show is the place to go to get a free trial on the Yabla video database. It's available in English, French, Italian, Spanish and Chinese. So if you're learning any of those languages and you want to get videos, the, the subtitles are super souped up and really help you learn a language that is the place to go there is just so much more that you can do on yabla you can play a really cool sort of fill in the gap from listening game it's called scribe and it's patented that's how good it is and you can loop the subtitles which is probably my favorite part in Chinese, where I've been struggling to understand, you know, to hear exactly the connections with words, and I really wanted to kind of get in there. This great has helped me so, so much with my listening comprehension, because this great little feature just lets you put a little loop on a piece of audio, on something that people are saying, and you can just watch it and hear it over and over again. You don't have to sort of rewind press play, rewind, press play. It just does it for you. And that saves you a lot of time and a lot of hassle. And if you like me, a lot of frustration. It's it's definitely helped me. And I would recommend Diablo to all of you if you are 
wanting to watch something entertaining but still get that language learning benefit out of it, it's all right there, done for you. Yabla.com slash Fluent Show. And thank you so much to Yabla for sponsoring the Fluent Show. Like every week, I also want to give a big shout out to the patrons of the Fluent Show. These are people who have signed up to support us with a pledge from just $2 a month. Doesn't matter how much you give, but they are there supporting the Fluent Show. And it makes such a big difference to just know that there is, you know, a little community out there keeping the podcast going and we're heading towards 40 of them. It's going to take a little while, maybe, but we are heading up and up and up. And I'm just so pleased to be reaching more of you and for more of you to be finding us on Patreon. So if you're curious about what's over there, go to patreon.com slash show. Plenty of bonus episodes are available to the public, so you can still get something out of the page, even if you choose not to be a Patreon supporter. A patron. That's what it's called. <laughs> now, one last thing about this week's interview that I want to tell you which is that today's interview is bilingual. Now, bear with me and don't panic. We mostly spoke English, but Mathilde is a French native speaker and I happen to speak French. So every now and then we switched into French, which is such cool listening exercise for those of you who are French learners. We also summarized what we said in English afterwards, so you're not missing out on any big part of the conversation. And remember, learning a language involves feeling a bit uncomfortable because you don't understand. So this is just part of that. If you're nervous about not understanding the French, don't worry about it. You will also notice that I didn't really say much in French and you do hear me making mistakes. It's just part of real life. And I'll be fully honest with you, we recorded this, I think, two days after we moved house in a lockdown. So bear with me. I did my very best. Matilda was very gracious and she is a native speaker. So if you're listening out for linguistic perfection, listen to her and not me. <laughs> That's it, really, for my intro. Oh, there's one final thing I wanted to remind you. That is today is Pod Rev Day. Pod Rev Day is a day where podcasters encourage their fans to leave a review on a podcast that they enjoy. So if you've been listening to any podcast, could be this one, could be a different one, and you want to show them that you've been enjoying the show, Why not head to podchaser.com or wherever you listen to podcasts, could be Apple, um, I think you can now review on Spotify and leave a review. If they're anything like me, they read them and they are touched by them and it makes a massive difference and it keeps them going. So if you want to participate in the Pod Rev Day community, share your review on Twitter afterwards with the hashtag Pod Rev Day. It really makes a difference to us podcasters. Time time. Let's go for it. Here is the interview this week with Mathilde Hutin from Elcom Linguiste. And here I am with Mathilde Hutin, my guest of the day. Mathilde is a French linguist who specializes in phonetics and phonology. She did her PhD at Paris 8. Is that how I say yes, it? Mathilde? Yes, exactly. Paris 8. <laughs> so Paris 8. Paris 8. Paris 8. <laughs> She worked on languages in contact, in particular loan words and second language processing. And Mathilde is now a researcher at the Limsi Lab in Orsay and a professor at New York University Paris Center. And she is the co-creator and co-host of a YouTube channel together with one of your friends and co-linguists. And that channel is called Elcom Linguist. Salut Mathilde. Hello Mathilde. 
Hi, very nice to be here. Welcome to the Fluent Show. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. I am curious right at the start to hear a little bit more about your YouTube channel. Who were you doing with, hit with, when did you start and what's it all about? Um, okay, so uh, it's a YouTube channel, a channel on linguistics, really on linguistics. I started it oh, a few years ago, something like four or five years. I don't remember <laughs> exactly. Um, and I, we did it um, with a friend of mine. Uh, she was uh, a PhD student at the same time when I was, uh, unless she finished before I did. And uh, she, we had the same, uh, the same supervisor. And uh, so now she's a researcher and professor at uh, the University of Nancy, uh, of Lorraine in, in France. And uh, she's more specialized in, um, so her name is Samantha. Uh, she's an, an Italian researcher, but she did her PhD here in France on French. And uh, she uh, she's more into uh, acquisition, language acquisition, but more uh, first language acquisition. And uh, now uh, we live in two different cities, which is why uh, it's sometimes difficult to have uh, videos uh, regularly. <laughs> but um, yeah, so we try to have a a channel that is uh, scientifically accurate. Uh, the idea was really to have videos that were as um, accurate and uh, correct scientifically as as uh, as much as we can um, on linguistics, because um, in linguistics you have a few a few channels in French that are like uh, vulgarization somehow, but really scientific mediation maybe a little less and well maybe we are three or four on that kind of subject uh, on youtube in french so it's really not a lot and um well uh, it all started because samantha was uh, about to finish her phd she wanted to do something about it uh, about with what she had learned and uh well i was a very a huge fan of um, scientific youtube channels already and uh, then we decided to do that together and it's really been a great adventure together we're very close friends so it's it's been really nice and when you say scientific i've looked at a few of your videos and mm -hmm. while it is scientifically accurate and all that kind of stuff you certainly don't make it boring no i hope not <laughs> um yeah uh, the the idea is to always um have uh, references and to cite our sources to have we have always a very uh, very important uh, reference section in the description in the in the description box um below the below the video there's always all the references we used and it's most of the time it's they're they're like scientific papers from very serious journals and you know so we really try to sum up things on a subject with uh, uh, scientific information mm -hmm. really really information that are accurate that have been published in peer-reviewed papers that kind of things 
And the other thing that shows through is your just your love and enthusiasm for linguistics. Where does that come from? Why are you into linguistics? <laughs> I don't know. I have absolutely no idea. DNA. <laughs> I I don't know. I don't know. I, I just know that I've been into linguistics probably since I can talk. Um, I, I I remember. Well, I. I mean, I remember the steps of my own uh, first language acquisition. So, and I, I'm not sure that's something that most people do remember that kind of things. Um, so yeah, I've, I've always been a linguist, I guess, which was a problem because uh, in France, there is no, uh, but up until the baccalaureate, there is no way for you to really be a linguist. You can study languages, but it's always from a literary point of view. So I've, I've had to study more, uh, literature and philosophy than math and science, uh, because I wanted to study languages. And that was a problem afterwards because obviously linguistics is a science and you need to know math and statistics and science and biology and physics. You need to know all that to be a proper linguist. And, uh, and of course, I had to, to learn that very, very late in my own education. So it's certainly something that I have seen expressed in, in linguistics and linguistics and language learning are ever so slightly misunderstood quite often. So that you, you really need to make sure that you are, you're clear on what it is that you want, what you want to cover. And certainly for me, being a, being particularly interested in language learning and but not in language um, acquisition you know in in childhood or anything like that it really is the active learning that fascinates me there isn't a clear way in the way that you you might be able to say I'm into physics but I am particularly into aeronautical engineering or I'm particularly into electronic engineering whereas if you're into languages what traditional education does it just kind of goes okay languages Yes, exactly. Well, traditional education, wherever you go, is about languages and not about linguistics, the science be behind languages. It's never about that until you go to the university and there you have linguistics courses and, and you can finally study linguistics or languages as, as scientific objects. But up until the baccalaureate in France or probably, um, well, the, the end of high school in most, uh, in most countries, uh, everything that has to do with languages will be languages. And it's never going to be really appreciated as a scientific object that you can study with the tools of linguistics. So, and, and that's obviously very different. I mean, you don't, teach a language the same way you teach a you teach linguistics and you don't learn a language the same way you learn linguistics they're, they're two very different things mm. i think there's something really interesting there that that i'm thinking about for fluent show listeners uh, if a listener is kind of just getting into languages perhaps as an adult who is coming to language learning and they've never been presented with thinking about language in this way before or perhaps a few of you guys a few of you listeners might be at a stage where you're thinking about future careers and you're thinking about what what might be open to you with languages and certainly what my experience has been Lindsay and I have talked about this before is essentially the three career choices that language lovers are presented with on average are 
interpreter, translator and teacher. There is, however, this linguist option of becoming a language scientist. And Mathilde, I want to know from you, how would somebody, what do you think, what kind of questions come up in your mind when you become interested in linguistics? Like, how can you tell I'm really into linguistics and then where can that lead you? Well, that is a very difficult question. <laughs> That's um, what we're here for. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, to, to answer the first part of what you said, uh, it is true that to be a linguist is a, a professional opportunity for people who like languages, uh, obviously. And um, there is more and more a need for people like us, uh, not only as uh, in academia, but also in the industry. I mean, Google, Facebook, they all need linguists. I mean, of course, it's a very specific kind of linguist, which we call computational linguists. Um, so technically, you're both a linguist and an informatician at the same time, a computer scientist at the same time. Um, so uh, obviously, that's a an opportunity for people who like languages um, to work with languages all the time so that's that's really a something you need to think about if you want to 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 work with languages and uh how do you know that um you uh that that you want to that you can can or want to be a linguist uh, and that you're into linguistics well i'd say it's probably when you realize that what you like in learning a language is to discover how a language works uh, so i would say that when you like uh, learning a language because you can um discover the 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 how how a specific kind of uh, pattern works uh, whether a phonological pattern or a syntactic pattern or and and when you like um maybe comparing the languages you know with uh, uh with each other and when when you do that kind of things when you like to uncover what is beneath the language what is hidden then i'd say you're pretty much into linguistics probably I love that this idea of what's hidden and the more the more you learn languages the more you're you're naturally drawn into linguistics. Something I found here on the Fluent show that we've been doing that, that's really been been building up over the years is the the ways that the many 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 different ways that languages reveal who we are as people. And I find that incredibly fascinating. It goes from minority languages to language attitudes to all the way into, you know, even phonology and all that kind of stuff. It is fascinating. Like I get so many questions about accents, for example, and there are 12,000 different ways of answering that question. And you really want to come at it kind of talking about, talking about it from the scientific point of view, but acknowledging that there's always something that you want to achieve when you want to acquire a certain accent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, From what you're saying, I'd say you're you would be pretty much into sociolinguistics. So oh, there be, are yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are like you know um, several several kinds of um, of linguistics and uh, sociolinguistics is uh, when you study a language as um, as a part of uh, or how could I say as as a a fuel in a, in a social environment. I mean, you, you study language in social environments. And, uh, and of course, about 
it's about how a language reveals things about our community and uh, vice versa. And um, so, yeah, of course, uh, so that would be uh, sociolinguistics and it's very different from obviously things like psycholinguistics or formal linguistics or computational linguistics. Those are all the, the different areas you can you can study languages and linguistics uh, into. And I'd say that um, it's very important here to remind to to remind us that um, the important thing about uh, languages and, and linguistics in particular is that it's a science. And so as a science, we are all about observing how it really works and we never tell people how they should do things. We are not prescriptivists. We are descriptivists. We describe how it works, but we are never going to tell people how they should uh, talk or how uh, this and how that. I mean, that's not our job. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's the important part because you, you talked about the accents. And for us, uh, what's interesting is how it works that there are people with accents when they talk. But whether they have an accent or not, we are not going to tell them whether it's good or bad. There is no notion of good or bad in science. That's a really important statement there as well. So there's no notion of good or bad in science. And this is often something I say to language learners who are listening to the show is that the, in a way, the mis- even the mistakes that you make, look at them neutrally. Don't look at them as, as a signal that, you know, that be- people make it mean big things. Um, but you, you got me very correctly as well. It's like if I read about languages, I tend to read about psycholinguistics or sociolinguistics. Um, and my favorite, I think my favorite academic piece of work is teaching and researching motivation. <laughs> so there's a, a big dose of psychology in there as well. Yes, yes. Well, second language acquisition is definitely a big part of psycholinguistic, uh, psych- psycholinguistics research. And, um, I, I actually in the lab where I, uh, did my PhD. So in Paris eight, as you said, um, there was a whole, um, a whole team dedicated to, uh, second language learning. And oh. it's really, well, it's it's a very very proficient area in linguistics because obviously there is an Im- immediate uh, direct way of putting things uh, in real life uh, it's easier to understand why we would uh, research about this than why we would research about the deep phonological patterns of uh what, whatever language <laughs> hidden somewhere. I mean, there, there are uh, direct applications. We can do things with it uh, almost immediately. And it's directly interesting for the society, for society to have uh, knowledge about that kind of things. So obviously there is a lot of researchers who, who work on that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Alors, Mathilde. En français, j'ai prévé, prévenu, prévenu, <rire> prévenu aux écouteurs et à, à toi aussi que je vais essayer de parler un peu français avec toi parce que toujours les épisodes bilingues, c'est quelque chose de très intéressant pour nos écouteurs et parce qu'il y a, il y a beaucoup de personnes qui apprennent le français euh, partout sur le monde et quelquefois, ils écoutent ce podcast aujourd'hui, euh, aussi <rire> aujourd'hui. Hey, aujourd'hui. Si vous écoutez maintenant, vous écoutez aujourd'hui. Alors, on y va. <rire> Mathilde, j'ai, j'ai une question concernant le nom de votre, de votre chaîne sur YouTube. 
en particulier, vous êtes elle comme linguiste. Oui. Vous êtes des, vous êtes des femmes, vous êtes des... des... Oui. <rire> Alors, euh, le nom de notre chaîne YouTube, euh, c'est un jeu de mots. Euh, en fait, on s'appelle elle comme linguiste parce que elle, they, mm -hmm. e de l e s, euh, ça se prononce elle comme la lettre elle. Et en français, quand on dit elle comme linguiste ou euh, o comme Octave ou V comme Véronique, en fait, ça permet ah. de dire qu'elle, ça permet d'élucider la lettre en fait. Et, et donc en fait, c'est un jeu de mots là-dessus. Et on l'écrit au lieu de dire elle avec un L, avec une lettre L comme linguiste, on a écrit elle, je comprends. E de ZLES parce qu'on est deux femmes. Mm -hmm. Et pour toi, est-ce qu'il est, est-ce qu'il est, est, qu est euh, inconventionnel Est-ce qu'il est euh, différent être une, une femme euh, dans ton métier ou est-ce qu'il y a beaucoup de femmes et c'est toujours normal euh, alors, c'est la linguistique, c'est un métier qui se féminise beaucoup. Il y a énormément de femmes en linguistique. Euh, la plupart de mes collègues directs, les personnes avec qui je travaille le plus souvent, sont des femmes. Euh, alors après, malheureusement, ça reste quand même un milieu dans lequel il y a beaucoup de sexisme. Euh, on, on remarque notamment que euh, il y a beaucoup, beaucoup de femmes qui font des thèses. Il y a plus de femmes que d'hommes. Mais ensuite, quand les personnes ont, sont titularisées, il y a plus il y a plus d'hommes ou autant d'hommes que de femmes alors qu'ils ont été moins nombreux à faire des thèses par exemple euh, donc c'est ça reste un milieu un petit peu un petit peu sexiste hein, comme tous les milieux scientifiques et tous les milieux en général mais euh, au quotidien non c'est pas quelque chose qu'on ressent et de toute façon moi je travaille euh, essentiellement avec des femmes puisqu'on est très nombreuses euh, dans ce milieu même euh, là où je travaille actuellement je suis dans un laboratoire qui s'appelle le LIMSI et c'est un laboratoire, euh, pas de linguistique, c'est un laboratoire d'informatique et de, de mécanique et de sciences de l'ingénieur. Et j'y travaille parce qu'on travaille sur de la reconnaissance vocale, euh, sur des technologies du, du langage en général. Et même mes collègues euh, en informatique, les personnes qui travaillent avec nous euh, en informatique, en informatique, etc., sont beaucoup de femmes aussi. Ah, ça me, ça me surpris un peu oui, alors après, il y a un peu plus d'hommes aussi de leur côté, mais moi, dans les personnes avec qui je travaille directement, c'est plus des femmes. Mm -hmm. Et dans ta... Je veux dire, dans ta carrière, dans le, le, euh, la croissance de ton métier, est-ce qu'il y a beaucoup de chances et beaucoup d'opportunités de devenir... d'avoir de, de un bon métier en, comme linguiste euh, je dirais que ça dépend ce que tu veux faire comme type de linguistique euh, et puis ça dépend dans quel pays malheureusement les métiers académiques sont toujours très très difficiles d'accès parce qu'il y a beaucoup beaucoup de personnes qui veulent un poste et très peu de postes qui sont vraiment ouverts donc malheureusement c'est pas toujours très facile mais il euh, y a certains domaines de la linguistique par exemple euh, si tu t'intéresses euh, 
à l'acquisition des langues secondes ou euh, à l'informatique ou ce genre de choses, tu peux trouver des, des emplois dans euh, dans l'industrie. Donc par exemple euh, chez Google ou chez Duolingo, enfin ce genre de choses quoi. Tu peux tu peux trouver aussi dans l'industrie de plus en plus et et après si tu es prête à faire des concessions et pas faire de que de la linguistique, tu peux trouver dans pas mal d'autres domaines aussi. Tu peux trouver en en, dans la communication, tu peux trouver, enfin voilà, tu, tu peux toujours trouver quelque chose, mais qui fasse de la linguistique vraiment pure et dure, ce sera plutôt euh, les métiers académiques ou à la limite euh, la recherche dans l'entreprise, dans l'industrie, dans comme chez Google ou chez ce genre de choses, quoi. Et enfin, faire un, euh, un PhD, un, un doctorat en, à Paris, est-ce que c'est coûte cher Est-ce que c'est. Est -ce est-ce que c'est euh, difficile à entrer Comment comment est-il Alors, c'est un sujet un petit peu difficile, effectivement. Euh, alors déjà, vivre à Paris, c'est très cher. Mm -hmm. C'est Vraiment, la vie à Paris est très, très chère. Mais euh, en fait, en France, on n'est pas absolument obligé d'habiter dans la même ville que là où on fait sa thèse. Euh, parce que en fait, il euh, y a quelques séminaires un peu obligatoires, mais dans les choses vraiment où il faut être présent, il y en a peut-être trois par an. Et puis dans les autres choses, il y a beaucoup de choses qu'on peut faire en visioconférence. Donc en fait, c'est jouable d'habiter ailleurs et de pas forcément habiter à Paris. Euh, par contre, pour faire une thèse, en fait, en France, les thèses de linguistique sont considérées comme des thèses de sciences humaines et sociales. D'accord. Et euh, à ce titre, on n'est pas obligé d'être financé. Donc en fait, n'importe qui peut s'inscrire en thèse et commencer une thèse et voilà. Ce qui est très difficile, c'est de commencer une thèse sous contrat doctoral, c'est-à-dire payé pour faire la thèse. Et ça, c'est beaucoup plus difficile. Il y a très peu de postes. L'année où j'ai passé le concours, euh, il y avait trois ou quatre places et on était une dizaine à postuler. Et, euh, et donc voilà, donc c'est c'est ça peut être un peu difficile. Moi, c'est pas le pire. Il y a des endroits où c'est il y a beaucoup moins de place et beaucoup plus de personnes qui veulent faire la thèse. Euh, mais donc oui, ça peut être difficile de trouver un financement. Mais il y a beaucoup de gens aussi qui travaillent à côté, qui n'ont pas eu le financement pour la thèse et du coup ils travaillent à côté. Euh, ils donnent des cours ou ce genre de choses, ou ils travaillent en entreprise. Il y a un système pour être payé aussi qui s'appelle une cifre. C'est un système où en fait euh, on est payé pour faire la thèse, mais on n'est pas payé par l'université, on est payé par une entreprise qui du coup nous euh, qui du coup nous nous paye pour faire de la recherche à condition que la thèse ait un rapport avec évidemment ce que l'entreprise euh, veut faire enfin euh, le, le type de recherche qu'elle veut euh, qu'elle veut avoir euh, pour euh, pouvoir euh, améliorer sa production ou mieux comprendre certaines choses etc donc mmh. parfois on peut être payé par une entreprise pendant la thèse mais c'est très difficile aussi parce que du coup on est obligé de c'est un peu comme si on avait deux deux emplois en fait il euh, y a l'emploi euh, la thèse et puis il y a l'emploi où par ailleurs on travaille pour la boîte donc c'est c'est ça peut être beaucoup de travail aussi je comprends. Et alors, euh, pour quelqu'un, 
<laughs> ça pourrait être vivre, vivre le, le, le rêve. <laughs> she's, she's living ouais. the dream. Um, so in, in French, you mentioned several times the word thèse. So you were talk, we were talking about, for, for all the listeners who just sat through that, I always admire you so much. It's so cool. Uh, she, she mentioned la thèse. So we were talking about what it's like to do a PhD in Paris and also what it's like to work in linguistics and a few of the available careers that are out there even if you don't want to become an academic. Now, Mathilde mentioned uh, la thèse. Can you just give the listeners a really quick summary in English so, we, so we're clear on what it means? Sure. Uh, so basically, a PhD in Paris, uh, you can do it whether you are paid for it or not. So you don't have to be paid for it. You can be just like a regular student or you can be paid for it and you're like a a salary man or woman <laughs> for three years. <laughs> mm. um, for three years, it's all, never more, never less. And um, and so there are several possibilities for you to get a to get a, to get a money for to be paid for your PhD. Uh, and um, yeah, I I think that's basically everything I said. I don't know why I talked so so long for in English in French. <laughs> <laughs> Now, let's come to the reason that you're on the Fluent Show, apart from being awesome and to be able to tell us about what it's like to be a linguist in Paris, which is pretty cool in itself. We we met on Twitter, I think, because I posted an appeal to to linguists to help me out with a listener question, and you put your hand up, virtual hand up, and just went. Oh my God, I'm into loan words because my question is about loan words. So I'd love to talk about loan words in a little bit more detail. And there's a question that I have from a listener that is fairly generic. So we can perhaps use it to start entering this this subject. But first of all, loan words, what, what are they? Does every language have them? Um, okay, so loan words are basically words that are borrowed from a language which is called the uh, uh, target language from a, another language which, which is called the source language. Uh, so, for example, in French, you have a lot of, uh, of loan words uh, from English, obviously, like in many other languages. And uh, in this case, the source language will be English and the target language will be French. Uh, it's important to note that loan words mean that the unit that is been that is being uh, uh, borrowed are, are words, but um, you can actually borrow anything from a language. You can borrow sounds, you can borrow phonemes, morphemes, you can borrow metrics. You can you can really borrow practically anything, and. Um, And uh, yeah, so, so to answer your question, most languages, except languages which are completely isolated, will uh, borrow words. It's really, it's something very natural that occurs when two languages enter in contact with each other. You've already mentioned that a lot of languages loan or, or take words from from English. So we'll come to that later, I think, in in a little bit more detail, because that's quite interesting in, in itself. And you've just mentioned isolated languages. So do we think of this as societies where there isn't much contact with with other speakers of other languages? Or do we think of it as a language isolate? So does, does Greek have fewer loan words than oh, French? Oh, no, 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 no. I really meant, um, so there are 
two two sides of the questions here. Um, so first, a language can be an isolate language, uh, but for uh, diachronic reasons. So it's the evolution of the language that made the language being uh, alone in, in its family, right? Like Basque or something. Um, and then you have isolated languages, which are isolated because the culture is isolated from a synchronic point of view. For example, on an island, obviously, a, a society won't have as many uh, contacts with the outside world than on the continent, for example. So for a long time, for example, in Japan, you had fewer loanwords because it's an island. You see what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. So it's more about whether the society itself and the speakers have got more contact with other speakers. Exactly. And it's actually a, a part of a branch of linguistics, which is called contact linguistics. <laughs> so where you study all that kind of things like loanwords, code switching, bilingualism, that kind of things. Mm -hmm. Now, tell me more about why so many languages take their words from English. Well, nowadays it's English, but before it was other languages. It's been French a few centuries ago. Um, and in, in some other cultures, even nowadays, uh, English is not the language where you, from, from which you borrow the most. But in the world, uh, worldwide nowadays, it's mostly English because English is a language that is considered as a prestigious language uh, because of the economical and uh, cultural um, prestige of the United States mostly and of course of other English-speaking countries and uh, this is why most uh, most known words come from English but there are a few a few societies where the the contact is more important with another language than than English and then they will borrow more to that other language than to English. Do you have any examples of loan words that French takes from English? Oh yes, there's a lot of <laughs> there's I mean nowadays there's at least I mean yeah yeah there's a, there's a lot of loan words uh, from English um, in French uh, like for example uh, all the words in ing in French are going to be loan words or si uh, simile loan words like fake loan words from English like jogging marketing um then you have of course all the words that come from um that are borrowed with the objects that are uh, that come from the US so for example uh technology of course like uh iPhone or um i don't know like a mousepad or that thing that kind of things and there's also a lot of uh, loan words from uh cultural objects like uh, clothes or or food, that kind of things. Mm -hmm. Now, in German, we... Obviously, I'm a German native speaker. And we do this thing where a word comes from English and people use it. And you can see what made them think that this would be an English word. But it's not actually a word that is used in English at all. So, for example, a classic example that many people know is that mobile phones in German are called Handys. Mm -hmm. And it's it, it, with a Y, with a Y. It's not a German word. It's totally like, this sounds English. Um, and I think it's because it sounds kind of cool, but I don't really, I don't have any data for that. It's just people are, people are weird, right? And then <laughs> there's um, another example is the, oh, a, a projector. 
you know, when you when you want to project a film onto the wall or something like that, that's called a beamer in German. And yeah. I can imagine why that might have happened because beam is came into the, came into use or came, became into popular consciousness in in the German language because of dubbed episodes of Star Trek. Oh, where where people get beamed about, right? So people wouldn't necessarily know the word project. And also there's no it doesn't really make as much sense of why you would replace the word projector with projector. That doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. But you can make it into beamer and it makes it sound cooler and shorter as well. Yeah, that's very important what you're saying right now about sounding cool. That's exactly the point when you borrow a language uh, a, a, a word from a language, you have actually two kinds of loanwords. You have what are called um, cultural loanwords and intimate loanwords. Cultural loanwords are the words where you borrow the word because you're borrowing the object. So like, for example, iPhones, they come from the US. The object was invented in the US. So when we took the, the object in France, for example, we took the word with it, which is iPhone. So those are cultural uh, loanwords. But then you have also um, intimate loanwords, and the distinction comes from Bloomfield in the 30s. And intimate loanwords are the words you're going to take in, 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 despite the fact that you already have a word for that, for that in, in your own language. So, for example, um, in French now you can say j'ai un date, I have a date, uh, instead of j'ai un rendez-vous. So we have a word for that, but we are going to use the English word because it sounds cooler, as you said. And why does it sound cooler? Well, because obviously language is very intimately linked to our sense of community and uh, and our conscious of uh, of prestige and uh, how and where we are in society in in a community. And of course, when you use the language of a of a prestigious culture, then you you act as if you were prestigious yourself. Oh my gosh! No way. Well, yes. Way. Well, when it's when it's spelled out like that, you feel like a right idiot for saying beamer, don't you? Yes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> but yeah, actually, so people are like that, right? Yeah, it's completely reasonable to think that. Um, well, with beamer, it's a bit. Um, different because the object uh, was not invented by uh, in, well, it, it wasn't in, invented in Germany so there wasn't um, there wasn't any reason for uh, the Germans to keep their German word because there wasn't a German word before but uh, when you borrow a word most of the time when you borrow an object most of the time you 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 borrow um you borrow the word with it um but it's not true for every culture though um for example in french we have a very very uh, famous example which is ordinateur mm -hmm, it's computer mm -hmm. and for some reason the 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 french word that was invented the innovation the innovative word that was invented to avoid the loan word uh worked as hell i mean Ordinateur is really the word you are going to use. Computer just doesn't exist in French. And it's the case for this word in French, but it's also the case for many words in various, um, various societies. I think, um, Finnish or that kind of language, um, is famous for 
avoiding loan words, but it's going to, to, to borrow other things or sometimes just have very few words. But, um, but yeah, in general, uh, you don't have to take the word with you with, with the object, but most of the time you do. And mm-hmm. that's actually what, uh, makes purists afraid, uh, because, you know, like purists, they want the language to be pure, to be, uh, perfectly like, um, very French <laughs> or very German or whatever. Yeah. And so they invent words, um, to avoid using alone words. What they most, what they forget most of the time is that actually a loan word by definition is used by monolingual native speakers. So, for example, a mousepad or uh, a date uh, are words that you can use uh, in French, even if you are a native language, uh, a native uh, speaker and um, and a monolingual speaker. You don't speak English, but you're still using that word, which means that in a way, in a sense, um, date and uh, mousepad or that kind of things, they are French words. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's something purists tend to forget. We get this in in Germany as well. Whereas in from from what I've know from what I've noticed from say what is it la société française. Mm-hmm. Um, alors le, le, la société française ils font des choses comme um, l'académie française ils ils font la création des des nouveaux mots français et je me souviens de l'école. Um, Apprendre ordinateur, apprendre courriel. Mm-hmm. Mais, mais courriel, ça ne, marche, ça ne marche plus en France. Alors, j'ai entendu qu'il est, il est souvent utilisé encore en Cana- au Canada. Oui. Et peut-être pour, parce qu'au Canada, on n'a plus de l'intention, il n'y a plus, de, plus d'émotion concernant la langue française. Et, et peut-être il y a un, un sentiment que... Um, tout le monde doit protéger la langue française mm-hmm. Oui, c'est exactement ça. Euh, le français au Canada, enfin les francophones au Canada, sont dans ce qu'on appelle une situation d'insécurité linguistique. Mmh. Euh, et donc, ils se sentent beaucoup plus euh, investis de la mission de protéger leur langue qu'en France, par exemple. Mais en France, il y a aussi évidemment des institutions euh, qui inventent des nouveaux mots pour euh, éviter les emprunts. C'est le cas, par exemple, de l'Académie française. C'est le cas de euh, de la DGLFLF, euh, de l'OIF aussi, peut-être parfois, je suis pas sûre. Uh-huh. Et au Québec, enfin au Canada, il y a l'Office québécois pour la langue française qui est chargé aussi de, de créer des mots, de proposer des mots bien français, entre guillemets, euh, pour <rire> éviter d'utiliser des emprunts. Parce que effectivement, au Canada, ils se sentent beaucoup plus menacés par euh, l'anglais qu'en France. Quelquefois, les, les emprunts, alors, ils, ils signifient un, une menace. Un, un menace. Ouais. Non, pas vraiment, en fait. Euh, les... Toutes les langues sont le résultat de contacts linguistiques. Mm-hmm. Euh, une, une langue pure, ça n'existe pas. Euh, c'est, complè- c'est un mythe. Et, et donc, en réalité, une langue, si elle emprunte, c'est parce qu'elle a la capacité de le faire. C'est une, une incroyable propriété euh, qui revient à, à pouvoir euh, emprunter des mots, utiliser des mots, euh, les, les améliorer, les, déjà les adapter, c'est-à-dire qu'ils ne sont jamais prononcés dans la langue euh, d'accueil comme ils le sont dans la langue source, euh, elle les adapte et ensuite elle les fait sien, 
Donc elle, elle, les, elle se les approprie et c'est une propriété des langues qui est absolument incroyable et en soi c'est une richesse, ça veut dire qu'on peut, euh, peut ajouter autant de mots qu'on veut dans une langue, on peut supplanter des mots qui sont devenus trop vieux, trop usés euh, avec des nouveaux mots. Euh, en fait, elle se régénère toute seule, la langue. C'est ça qui est incroyable. Donc, en soi, c'est pas c'est pas du tout un danger. C'est plutôt une, une force des langues d'emprunter mm -hmm. des mots. Mm -hmm. Mais bien, évidemment, ça fait Une langue aux... avec des emprunts, c'est une langue vivante. Exactement, oui, bien sûr. Une langue qui n'emprunte plus, euh, si elle est, alors qu'elle entre en contact avec d'autres euh, langues, euh, a priori, c'est qu'elle euh, qu est plus assez utilisée, en fait. Mm. Et qu'elle est en train de mourir. It strikes me uh, um, that... When we talk about what you know, the what what loan words really are, and how how much loan words come from contact with other languages, the extent to which language, again, and <laughs> this is something I keep finding again and again with the the every interview that I do, whether it's been about emoji or minority languages, languages are such a mirror of society, and perhaps that's my sociolinguist leanings there. I find it fascinating. <laughs> yes, it, it totally gets me. <laughs> Let's stay in Europe for a minute. I have uh, just an example that I wanted to share with you that I thought was really interesting from Gosha. She's one of the listeners and she's a Polish native speaker. And she says one of my favorite loan words in Polish is kartoffle, mm -hmm. as you might guess, potatoes. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been, and then she says it's been recently used less than when I, when I was a kid. Nowadays, everybody says zimniaki. They've always been zimniaki. That's the Slavonic words. But kartoffle used to be more used in the past and i said to her oh yeah I, i'm aware that kartoffel and katoshka is in in russian as well so for some reason potatoes just in eastern european linguistics seem to be german <laughs> and uh but then she talked about how words like influencer and um, in particular bus pass apparently polish has a word bus pass which again is a bit like beamer like there's no actual polish origin for this word and how they really bother her so the reaction to the different words from different languages can be different depending on when they came in or what what is that all about yeah well obviously um it's all about the cycle of life of a word so to speak so oh. words are getting are being used in the language And the more they're used, the more they are the normal usage, the, the basic word that you are going to use for a specific object or concept or whatever. And obviously at one point, when, if you want to, uh, to reinforce the word, if you want to, the word to be, or the object to, ha to have a new, a new name because it's not strong enough anymore, then you are going either to borrow it or to uh, use a former word that had been abandoned before for the exact same reason and you're going to um to reuse new ancient words or to borrow new words and so a single word is never going to have always the same meaning across time it's evolving as well and some words are just losing Their, their meaning. For example, rendezvous in French, mm -hmm. um, which has been used, uh, which has been borrowed in, in English uh, as date for a long time. A, a, a rendezvous was a, a romantic and, uh, encounter. In and, German too, when I was growing in, up. In German too. And, uh, actually, uh, in French, it's the basic, it's, it was 
uh, the word for a romantic uh, encounter, but it was also the word for a, any kind of meeting. And so at one point, if you wanted to say that you had a romantic rendezvous, you had to have either an ancient word some, somehow, which we don't have in French, I don't think so, or you use a, a borrowing. You borrow another word and you borrow to English because it's the prestigious language. And so you say, j'ai un date. And probably in a few years or a few decades, maybe, uh, date, date as a French word is going to be used, uh, overused as well. And we are going to need a new word to say that particular thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so at that point, maybe we are going to reuse rendezvous or maybe we are just going to, to borrow another word from another language, whatever prestigious language uh, there is at the time. We don't know. Mm. Well, you can have Verabredung, that's fine. For example. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not particularly, it's not, I don't know, it's it's funny as well, because with the different words, like if I think about date versus rendezvous, in German we have used both at different points in time. And I think of rendezvous as the kind of thing where you go out and have a three-course meal with candlelight and wine. Mm-hmm. And that might just be because rendezvous was more around when I was a kid and I had romantic ideas about what, what that might be like. <laughs> mm-hmm. Whereas with date, I think more about, yeah, you know, you meet on Tinder and there might be some, there might be some action after. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, that's, <laughs> that's the other reason why rendezvous is not used so much anymore, either in English or German mm-hmm. or French or whatever. That's because also the reality of what a rendezvous was uh, actually changed today. Like, as you said, um, uh, rendezvous, well, in French, it could still be, uh, something with a candlelight and everything. And it can still be also what we call a date in English. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously the fact that it changed in German is because the reality of it changed. Um, a romantic encounter is not going to be the same thing today as it was, uh, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So obviously, that's also one of the reasons why we had to ch- to switch words. That's because the the reality changed. So we we have some somehow a new thing, a new habit, uh, which needs a word. And uh, since the former habit hasn't disappeared completely, we need a new word because otherwise there would be confusion. Oh my God, mind blown. This is amazing. This is amazing. Now we, we've, we've talked for so long about loan words and the psychology and the sociology and everything, all the parts of loan words. We haven't even touched on, um, localized pronunciation, which I think in, in most languages with the English loan word doesn't really happen so much. I can, I can, but I think of, um, I'm thinking of the Japanese language, for example, where there's quite a bit of English that comes in and is, is quite Japanese-ized. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a phenomenon which we call phonological adaptation. So mm-hmm. basically when a word enters a language, uh, it comes from a language with a particular system where there are a particular set of phonemes, a particular set of uh, word or grammatical constructions, and etc. And when it's borrowed uh, into another language, that other language doesn't have the same phoneme inventory, for example. So most of the time, we adapt the word um, for several reasons. The first one being that we don't hear actu- the actual word correctly. Um, 
And and so we are going to pronounce it à la French or à la Japonaise or à la whatever. So you're going to adapt it to your own phonology. So in Japan, in in Japanese, for example, um, when you have two consonants in a row, that's something that the Japanese language can't do. And there are actual studies that show that when you have two consonants in a row in Japanese, Japanese speakers tend to hear an illusory vowel between the two. Because it's it just can't be otherwise, and so that's one of the reasons why uh, in Japanese, when you have two consonants in a row in a in a loan word, it's going to be broken up by an u vowel, like um, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, like uh, uh, milk is going to be called miruku. Because in Japanese, you can't have two consonants in a row, and you can't have final consonants. I see. So it the the conventions of Japanese need to be applied to to the English word that that comes in. Yes, exactly. And we see and for, it in English, right? With I'm thinking champagne. Yes, yes, and it's it's true for every language when the when the society is not bilingual, when there is not a a situation of diglossy, um then you have to adapt the word. It's almost never the case that the word enters the language with its original pronunciation. Never. That's fascinating. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Now that brings me to the question that triggers that triggered this whole discussion, mm-hmm. which came to me on Instagram, and it's a it's a good kind of question to conclude. If now having having learned this much about loan words, there is a question for the language learner. You know, and especially perhaps the English native language learner who's learning another language. And that's kind of what triggered, uh, what, what, or what, what prompted the question that came to me, which goes like this. Something I've been grappling with lately is the notion that using English words in different language equals modern, educated. So we've spoken about prestige, Mathilde. Mm-hmm. I can understand how that idea may have come about, but I personally feel almost uncomfortable with it because as you've mentioned already, there are the same word equivalents within the language that mean using English isn't really necessary. So I wonder why not use the available word? Um, I am Korean and on a regular basis I come against the issue of do I use the Konglish word or do I seek out the Korean original? Now as a language learner who is learning, say, Korean, and Korean uses the word, I don't know what, um, tram stop, (laughs) or whatever, whatever Korean uses, skateboard, do you... Is it is it best to use the word even though you are the native speaker of the language where that word originated from? Well, there's a twofold answer to that. The first one is that the Korean speaker you're talking about who asked the question, he says, or she said, I don't know, um, that uh, somehow it didn't feel necessary to use the English word or the Konglish word. Um, and... I would say that it's not entirely true. The fact that they entered somehow the the Korean language means that at some point they were necessary. Um, I mean, not in the sense, obviously, uh, that the language didn't have a word and needed a word, because obviously it already had a word. Um, in the case of uh, in the case of intimate uh, um, intimate borrowings, but uh, it's necessary in the sense that the language uh, takes everything it can um, 
to renew itself and to to become more prestigious and obviously the the fact that korean borrows so much to english is uh, partly due to their history they still have a lot of uh, americans in korea and uh, it's due to the fact that worldwide the us is considered as a prestigious culture uh, so in a sense it's not uh, they're not unnecessary if they happened it means that at some point they have been necessary um, and so to answer the, the question of that person, I'd say that, you, as I said at the beginning of the talk, um, there is no notion of good or bad in linguistics. I'm never going to tell people how they should speak. I'm just observing the usage, uh, how words are being used, and that's it. And trying to understand how it functions, how it works. But uh, what I would like to say is that, um, uh, if that person feels obviously um, uncomfortable using Konglish words, then he or she shouldn't use them, obviously. But then she or he has to understand that he uh, is part of this uh, particular type of people we call purists. Um, and uh, obviously, well, it's not a bad or good thing in, in per se. I mean, it's just like that. And um and the and the the interesting thing here is that this person is asking herself or his himself himself sorry uh whether um it's better to use the native word or the conglish word um which means that um which uh, underlines somehow that people are aware that some words are not as korean maybe than other words um but uh, and this awareness is interesting because it shows how the whole um uh meta linguistic uh works uh works uh, in in, mm-hmm. in 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 a, in people's mind um but as a linguist i'd say there is no good answer to that i mean i use loan words all the time i think they're a beautiful way of renewing the language of making it uh 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 uh, energetic again and very uh, renewed and everything and every language is any it's even 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 Korean which is on a on a semi island so it's not really completely cut off from the continent but it's still um, a bit apart um, even there even in what this person probably calls native Korean words there's a lot of words that actually come from Chinese so. I mean, every language when, I mean, a pure language, as I said, doesn't exist. And the question then is to, uh, is whether you embrace the newness, you embrace the fact that uh, your language is evolving and you act as, and you're an actor of this evolution, or you prefer your language to uh, stay uh, as it is for as long as possible. And, and then you're more of a purist or something, but, but. That's a personal question that you have to answer by yourself. Ah, uh, yeah. So as soon as, so essentially, the answer to the question cannot really be categorical. It has you have to examine if you if you're asking yourself the question, you're already examining. I think, but the answer is really if you have to examine your attitude to to language. Um, exactly. But I can see how, especially with the prestige factor that we've talked about. And the cultural dominance factor of, say, an American, that an American learner might 
learn Korean and feel like they are enacting some kind of yeah. unjust cultural dominance by using a loan word, but that is not the truth at all. No, no, not at all. That's actually the the other question you asked and I completely forgot to answer. Um, but yeah, actually, loan words have this uh, great ability too that they help uh, learning languages because you can always grasp some things you already know. So for example, if I try and learn Korean, it's going to be easier for me using first the Konglish words so that I can build my first sentences and try and communicate. And then at one point, I'm going to learn the uh, native uh, uh, words. Uh, but it's a, a great uh, entry door for, for learners, uh, thanks to what we call intercomprehension. So somehow you better understand things you already know, and you focus on the on the commonalities between two languages. And then at one point, you refine your knowledge of the language. I had a student who learned uh, Japanese. And in Japanese, as you know, there are a lot of uh, English and French words. And she said that when she uh, didn't know a word in Japanese, she used the English word pronounced as a Japanese word. And most of the time it would work. And that allowed her to already be able to communicate in this language, which is very different from European languages, obviously. Um, in, it, and she could communicate very, very quickly with other people. And then she could refine her knowledge of Japanese later. But she already had a good basis for, for learning for her knowledge of Japanese. Mm. So loanwords are actually a huge, uh, a huge, uh, advantage for it. It's really great for people who are trying to learn a language. Um, and especially if they already know English, because as we said, uh, English is the most borrowed word or uh, language in, in, in the world's languages. So it's, it's an opportunity for people to already know some vocabulary in a language they don't know. Yeah. And so it helps, obviously, learning that language. Um, it makes things easier somehow. So there you have it, listener. Relax <laughs> is the answer, really. Yes. <laughs> you know? yes. Relax and use the words that you need in order to help you express yourself, which is such a, I can tell you, Mathilde, that's a very fluent show type of conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's what we're here for. I like to, I like to give permission wherever I can. Alors, euh, on, on conclut pour la dernière fois en français, peut-être un peu. Euh, Mathilde, où pourrait une, une personne dans le, à la fin de l'interview, euh, si nos écouteurs ou si une personne voudrait euh, savoir un peu plus de toi et de elle comme linguiste et des des doctorats et de, de la linguisterie, comme tu dis, <rire> <rire> où pourrait où pourrait-on le trouver? Oh, that was a complex sentence there. <laughs> non, non, très bien. Euh, <laughs> alors, euh, on est beaucoup sur Internet. Euh, alors, moi, personnellement, j'ai un, une page LinkedIn et ce genre de choses. Et j'ai bientôt un site Internet aussi. <laughs> euh, mais uniquement professionnel. Et par contre, tout ce qui est en rapport vraiment avec la linguistique, euh, avec euh, notre chaîne YouTube, etc., on est sur Facebook. Euh, on est un petit peu sur Instagram, mais pas beaucoup. Et par contre, on est beaucoup sur Twitter. On, on publie beaucoup de choses sur Twitter. On essaye de diffuser euh, des informations intéressantes euh, sur, euh, sur la linguistique en général euh, sur Twitter. 
mmh. et partager d'autres contes d'autres linguistes qui font des choses intéressantes aussi. Euh, pas forcément sur les emprunts, mais surtout. D'accord, je comprends. Alors, <rire> beaucoup, beaucoup de locations, de places, beaucoup de sites. There we are. Um, beaucoup oui. de sites pour trouver, oui. pour, trouver, pour euh, lire plus sur Mathilde. Et Mathilde, est-ce que tu as un, un emprunt préféré un, un comment Un emprunt préféré. Ah, ah c'est une bonne <rire> question. Je ne sais pas, non, je les aime tous. <rire> d'accord, d'accord. So, listeners, you can find Mathilde. Perhaps easiest just to go to her guest page on the Fluent Show website, which is fluent.show slash guests slash Mathilde. Or you can go to fluent.show slash guests and actually browse the amazing range of guests that we have had here on the show that we've been lucky to have. You're, a, you're in good company, Mathilde. And I'm going to conclude today, of course, by signing off in the usual Fluent Show way. This has been an awesome conversation. Merci, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for having me. And I'm going to sign off, as we always do, by saying goodbye from me. Goodbye and goodbye from Mathilde Dutin. Au revoir. Thank you for listening to The Fluent Show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show by leaving a review in your podcast app or even becoming a member of our Patreon community where our supporter perks include a secret feed full of added show notes and a VIP option where you can get priority answers to your listener questions on the podcast. Don't forget that you can send us your language questions and feedback to hello at fluentlanguage.co.uk or find us on Twitter at The Fluent Show or Instagram hashtag The Fluent Show. We're always so excited to hear from you and read every message and review. See you next week.